Before I get started, I just want to play a short video uh, of a of a piece in action uh, some of you may have encountered. It's a 2008 app uh, for the iOS environment by uh, an artist named Brian Eno uh, in collaboration with uh, Peter Chilvers called Bloom. The video continues like this for several minutes. It might be really nice in the rush of a conference to sit here <laughs> and just enjoy it for a while. Um, unfortunately, we don't have time for that, but, uh, but sort of let this continue on in your mind as I speak. Um, all right. Some interesting things about this work to note is that it is relying on the interactivity of someone just pushing spots with their fingers on the screen to generate these notes. Um, however, if you don't touch it for a long time, it will start to just, uh, in a manner of speaking, touch itself. It will start to begin to generate notes on its own. The, the music will start to spontaneously uh, generate. And also notice that no matter where the person seems to be touching, the notes that are coming out uh, are uh, 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 within a certain tonal scheme, they're within a certain. There's really no wrong note you're going to press while touching it. It's kind of all constrained within a certain realm of worlds. You don't get to determine what the uh, what the sound sounds like, and you're only kind of determining the uh, area of the pitch you're touching. A lot of decisions are being made by the software. The interaction is just determining when and how many of these things will happen and then kind of how they behave once they, uh, once they go on. So uh, this is a, an example of what uh, Brian Eno calls generative music. Um, and uh, that term generative has its own uh, history. I'm using it today to talk about generative audio. Uh, and what I mean by generative audio is situations where uh, uh, the audio content of what you're hearing is being in some way, in some respect, generated on the fly. It's happening uh, in real time uh, as uh, it's, it's being sent out and being listened to. Um, so the, the uh, implications of this for things like sound art, installation art, uh, are really clear. But what I'm hoping to do is uh, bring my practice to you folks today uh, and to uh, sort of put these ideas out and see what it might inspire for you in terms of what's possible with the future of, of uh, new, what do you call it these days, documentary, audio, podcast, radio things that you're making. Um, I have a small connection to the radio world back in uh, uh, 1998 and 99. 
I was the uh, audio engineer putting shows up on the satellite for a, a small um, a radio documentary program called Soundprint that some people may have heard of at one point in sort of the history of radio. So that was my, my sort of brief era of assembling uh, dialogue and sound effects and, and atmospheres and trying to put together shows with producers. So I do have a bit of that in my background, so I'm not a complete foreigner here. Uh, but since the late 90s, I've kind of taken a very different direction with uh, my work, and that's a lot of what we'll be uh, looking at today. Um, so uh, uh, to, to sort of tie up a definition of generative audio, uh, any situation where uh, the audio is being created on the fly, usually in response to either some sort of interaction from the outside world, as we just saw in Bloom, uh, some kind of internal uh, or external indeterminacy, something that is randomly being chosen, a coin is being flipped in some way, um, uh, or uh, some other form of interference. Uh, and there are many uh, ways that that can manifest, and hopefully we'll get to take a look at a lot of those today. Um, I'm going to spend just a second talking about tools. I don't want anyone to get scared away by the sort of the a second of, of more intense tech talk, but it's important because the first question a lot of folks will ask me after this is, how do I get started with this? What things do I explore? And I want to make it clear, everything that we're looking at today pretty much has been created in an environment called Max, which is a programming language that's been around since the 80s, uh, gained audio capability right around 1997, which was the first time that I started using it, um, and uh, has since grown to be able to include video and uh, all sort of reaches across uh, uh, all kinds of media technologies at this point. Uh, it's not a free program. Um, it is a really sort of at this point kind of a pretty deluxe program to work in. There are a lot of other uh, systems out there. So I just want to very quickly mention a few of them uh, so that if you're looking for a place to get started in generative audio, you're not thinking Max is the only, the only venue. There's a very venerable program that's been around in one form or another, if you believe it or not, since the 60s called C-Sound. Uh, it first began as a program called Music. Uh, I think at that point there was not a lot of competition in the namespace, <laughs> so they managed to score that one. It's Max Matthews working at Bell Labs. Um, uh, created this, uh, and uh, C-Sound is the sort of the, the heir to uh, uh, that whole rich history. Um, there's a program called Super Collider, which came out about the same time as Max, and when its owner was sort of uh, hired away into the confines of some bunker for Apple to do all of their internal audio stuff, the program became uh, a public domain. So this is now a free program. It's much more command line, but it has a lot of the same functions and features as Max. Uh, there's a program called Pure Data, which is actually by the same person who originally wrote Max. Um, Pure Data, uh, the PD in Pure Data has sort of a double entendre as public domain. I think the author has a regret that they ever sold sort of the first version of Max off. And so this was kind of an agreement they have where they keep the programs just different enough uh, uh, to, uh, for it not to be a direct competition with the commercial product. But PD is very powerful. And one of the most powerful things about it is that it's readily uh, embeddable into uh, mobile applications. There's a, a thing called LibPD, which you can use to take uh, uh, programs written in PD and, and just stick them right into apps you're making on your cell phone. So the interactivity uh, kinds of features that I'm describing in Macs are often 
very directly translatable into PD and then into iOS or Android apps. Uh, another freeware uh, language is called Chuck. This one's sort of out of Princeton and Stanford. Um, and the main developer, Go Wang, is at uh, Stanford right now, and this is currently a very uh, vibrant living language. There's Jibber, which is a web-based language for, uh, it's kind of more beat-oriented music, but it's all about live coding. It's being able to sit down at a laptop, load up this web page, and immediately have audio code execute inside a web page. Um, Plug Bedool, Faust, there, and I could go on and on. These are sort of the, the, the programs that have the largest community around them at this point. So I bring these up not to overwhelm you with options or show you lots and lots of lines of code, uh, but just to say that there are a lot of entry points at this point, and new languages are coming about at the rate of one or two a year. I can't keep on top of it, uh, but there's a, a lot of excitement and, and communities around these, and where there are communities, there are often forums and tutorials and people who are very friendly and very encouraging who want to answer your questions and uh, help you get involved in the uh, web of insanity and evil that they're creating with their, uh, their uh, uh, amazing generative audio stuff. So uh, this is just an encouragement to sort of go out and look and sort of find the, the community that's, that's right for you. Um, another technology I'll just mention alongside Max that's really enabled a lot of these changes to come about in recent years uh, is the advent of microcontrollers, uh, the ability to read sensors and bring data from those sensors into uh, programming languages such as Max, programming environments where then the sensor data can be interpreted and responded to in different ways. Uh, the sort of current king of the hill uh, in that regard is the Arduino. Uh, which is a, a $20 board you can buy. I always tell people buy two, so when the first one goes up in flames, you have the second one uh, to work with. But uh, uh, that's sort of until you figure out which one's the ground and which one's the lead and <laughs> how that works. But once again, a, a great community full of uh, people doing very exciting work uh, with microcontrollers. Lots of instruction out there about how to set up basic sensing parameters. Uh, and a great companion to work alongside the various generative audio uh, uh, projects I'm, I'm describing. There's also, of course, the Raspberry Pi, the Beagle Board, and the number of microcontrollers and even knockoffs of the Arduino that exist are just too numerous to even go into right now. And it isn't really the point of what I'm saying, but there's a lot of ways of getting information uh, from outside a computer to inside, um, not to mention cameras. MIDI devices like the one I have sitting up here, and so on. So, okay, enough of that. Um, I began thinking about generative audio uh, in my own work in 2006 when I uh, was given a really sort of strange and, and curious, kind of wonderful assignment working with a company who's headquartered just a few hours north of here called Kohler. You'll be familiar with them from uh, various bathtubs, sinks, and toilets that you've encountered in your life. Um, they, uh, at the time, were trying to make, this is 2006, they were trying to make a bathtub that would have embedded audio in it. Uh, they looked at this as a sort of an, an, uh, a kind of a luxury item. They had a designer who was creating a lighting experience these little LED colorful lights that would light up the water in different ways, uh, and they wanted to have an audio 
experience to go along with this. And so somehow I heard about the call for proposals and somehow they accepted my proposal and decided I was the person to create this uh, audio environment for the bathtub, which was, is a, is a whole other like novella unto itself, which I, I won't go into. But um, it was clear to me after my first initial tests working on this project that um, you'd either need to make a very long piece of music or if it was going to loop, the loop would have to be very, very subtle um, because otherwise, every time you got in the bathtub, you'd start to feel like even, you know, even with really abstract ambient pieces of music like uh, Brian Eno's music for airports, uh, you can listen to it enough times to where you start to feel like, oh, here's the moment where that thing happens, where that note lines up with this note or where this particular you know, phrase or gesture occurs in this way followed by this other thing. And you start to become aware of the loop and then it starts to slowly grate on you. And it starts to feel as though you're having this kind of repetitive experience that weirdly creates anxiety. Uh, at least it did for me. And so anything I was creating, no matter how relaxing and wonderful it was, had this undertone of tension after a while when I listened to it for the 70th time. It's a different phenomenon than listening to your favorite song by your favorite artist over and over again, which you're listening to for very different reasons, I think. This just became this, this uh, grind. And so I was thinking, well, what's the, if I want music to kind of stay in this realm of a particular mood or a particular instrumentation, but I want it to sort of continually be organic and ever-changing, how would I create that kind of a situation? And uh, at that point, I'd already been coding in Max for a while, and it seemed clear to me that the, the best way to do it would be to get a small computer, put it inside the bathtub, I mean, outside the bathtub, <laughs> inside the bathtub, very bad, but, um, but, but create a situation where you could sort of turn on the music and it would just generate by the yard this sort of endless supply of music that was all within a certain realm of, of mood and tone. And maybe there would be settings for that mood or, and tone, but uh, uh, it would be able to do this without looping. Um, and uh, at that point, generative audio was not something that anyone was talking about. And I think that the engineers I was dealing with were really not excited about uh, putting a computer inside the bathtub and increasing the cost and potential points of failure. In the end, after about six months of going back and forth with their design team, they put a jack on it for an iPod and called it a day. Uh, which I think is in the end kind of what they wanted in the first place. But, um, but the process I went through of creating a bunch of generative compositions, and if you know how these design processes go, when you're pitching things to a client, you create lots and lots and lots of these. So I was sitting in my studio late at night creating generative composition after generative composition. I was making seashores and forests and mountaintops. And, and I was thinking about you know, all the different ways you might want to feel while you're in a bathtub, which is a really weird place to put your mind for months at a time. Um, <laughs> I took more baths then. <laughs> I, I don't really ever want to take a bath. I just like I'm really into showers now. Um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, anyway, this 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 project kind of led me to start thinking about ways that uh, uh, audio could self-generate and rules could be devised for creating these kinds of these kinds of things. So here's a, a, a few projects I've done uh, since then that are that work along those lines. Um, 
I have a, uh, uh, I always put the word band in quotes because it feels weird to say a band, but a band. With my friend uh, Scott Smallwood, we call ourselves Evidence, and uh, he and I are um, both uh, uh, active field recordists, and we also have a background in uh, improvised music, and so we have pieces of software we've each written that allow us to pull from our library of recorded sounds and improvise music with each other. So uh, this is an example of uh, one piece that is part of uh, uh, an album we released in 2003 called Visuals. We called it Visuals because we like what happens when we would close our eyes and listen to the record and what we imagined people would be seeing. Um, but this version you're hearing right now is, a, is not us, not only us playing live with each other. Um, we, to create this album, sat down and spent several hours improvising music. Um, our style is very much to not talk about what we're going to do. We just start playing and kind of negotiate our way through uh, sound spaces together. So uh, this is actually a version of that music that um, we took short segments of each of us performing and fed them into a piece of software which then is able to sort of assemble them live. And so you get this sort of evocative sound feel that kind of builds and the decisions are ours, but they also belong to this software. The decisions about what to mix in and how to mix it in, how to make it work, is all according to a set of rules that we designed. Uh, there's a version of the piece uh, you can, that's a piece that, that uh, you can listen to in a fixed format, sort of an album length thing that's available online on Bandcamp. Uh, but there's also uh, uh, an eight channel uh, version of it that uh, lived in uh, a gallery for a month when the album was first released. And we liked the idea that the, the piece could be both a sound installation and an album, and that there would be a fixed version of it and an open-ended version of it. Uh, the gentleman here, uh, uh, Wolfgang Gill, who's an engineer in New York, uh, volunteered bravely um, to spend the entire month in the gallery while this piece was up, sort of uh, uh, attending the table at the, the front of the room. Um, and uh, I guess it's, it's a testament to either his fortitude or, or what we made or a combination of the both that he and I still speak. Uh, we're still friends after that experience. Uh, but he claims that his experience of the piece was that it never, there was never any repetition. There was never any feeling that he was returning to the same place in the music, that it continued to evolve and that it had its own kind of internal logic that made sense, which uh, is, is kind of the, the, the point of success I really wanted to achieve with these kind of uh, generative algorithms. Here's another shot of the same place. Um, a very different approach to uh, this kind of fill-in-the-blank sort of generative music approach uh, is this piece called Quartets, which I created in conjunction with the Open Signal uh, Festival. Turn it down a little bit. Um, in Providence, Rhode Island, a few years ago, this piece uh, we commissioned a bunch of composers 
uh, improvisers, in this case about 90 people, ended up responding to our call to create seven-minute performances, to record themselves doing seven-minute improvisations or some kind of seven-minute construction of sound. Uh, and the only parameter was you could use any sound you wanted as long as there were abrupt changes in style that occurred at certain points within those seven minutes that everyone kind of agreed to. So you'd have a moment where everyone's uh, sound would shift to something new. And it would give a sense that when you played several of these recordings together, that there was an ensemble agreement, that there was some kind of a conspiracy between the performers that is one of the sort of magical elements of creating a musical performance, even though uh, these people had in many cases never met and uh, were creating these sounds uh, completely independently from each other. So over the course of the several days this piece showed, there were sort of these generative ensembles coming out uh, and the performers were named on this screen, but you had the ability to sit and each one of them had their sound performed through one of these hanging speakers in the room. So you had this sense that you were actually in the room with these four performers as they, as they did their thing. Um, Another piece, uh, and this is just from uh, just a bit earlier this year, and I can go into a little bit more detail about this one. I think this, this performance actually happened last month. Uh, this is the, uh, the chapel on Princeton University's campus, uh, and the woman in the aisle there is Bora Yoon, who is a composer, media artist, mezzo-soprano, amazing uh, singer and sort of thinker about future uh, musical possibilities. And what she wanted to do was create a durational, long-term performance installation, performance slash installation, where she would be able to walk around the room and uh, uh, sing and kind of explore the architecture of these different spaces. And there would be a continuous sound environment going on. Uh, I think sounded like this. She used a number of different families of sounds, crickets, birds, a heartbeat, pages flipping from books, a little bit of radio static, uh, bells and chimes, um, kind of a world of sound that she wanted to include as part of, uh, as part of her composition. And when she did this piece originally a few years ago, um, she had never really worked with Max, and so she did what seemed most logical to her, which is to take all of these sound files, create an eight-hour-long Pro Tools session, and simply put the whole thing together as a big eight-hour-long sound file, render it out, and play it. Uh, but she found that as she rehearsed with that, even though it was eight hours long, and even though she was pretty indiscriminate about how she threw things together, she still got to the point where she could predict what was going to happen, and that wasn't really satisfying for her. She wanted something she could kind of improvisationally push against instead of trying to work with the same audio every time. So for this, uh, we worked together to create a version of her uh, software, a version of her sound that would organically self-generate. And what we're listening to right now is actually not a recording of that. Uh, it's, I actually have the, the patch here and open, I'll just open, open this up. So this is a a big max patch. Uh, I gave it a yellow, a yellow background so it'd be really easy for her to read kind of at a distance. Um, 
as she wandered around, she could kind of pass by the computer and get a sense of what it was doing. But all of the different families of sounds that she wanted, uh, certain specific music cues that happen at certain times, um, uh, uh, water sounds, wind sounds, cricket sounds, chime sounds, body sounds was a whole category she wanted to work with, birds, bees, frogs, heart, the heartbeat itself, and uh, this one recording of doves that's supposed to happen at critical moments uh, throughout the piece. So there are some things which are composed to happen at certain times, but many of the elements come and go kind of randomly on their own. Uh, down here in the corner, I've got this small piece of code that is a timekeeper. It's basically telling me how many seconds into the installation I am. So every 3,600 seconds that go by, I'm another hour in. Uh, and with this, I was able to tell the piece uh, certain rules that she really wanted. For example, birds happen until sunset, which on that day was 6.30. And then after that, the, no more birds, but we hear frogs and crickets. And those worlds of sound kind of come to life. Uh, and so the piece, not only is it sort of relying on its own internal randomness and logic and rules, but it is also paying attention in the most rudimentary way to some aspect of the outside world, that is, the time of day. Um, so we have a situation here uh, where that was happening. Originally, we had wanted to have it respond to the light level in the space, but we discovered that the artificial light, the daylight streaming in from the outside, the occasional uh, uh, passing of clouds over the sun, these things didn't have the kind of range of connection that we really could interpret well onto this piece, so we ended up dropping that idea. But that was originally an idea as well, to incorporate uh, this other source of, uh, of control from the outside world. Uh, all right. Um, one last piece in this realm I'll mention is a, a piece that happened in uh, 2010 uh, in conjunction with a, a group called Animal Collective, that some of you may know. Um, they did an installation piece at the Guggenheim Museum in conjunction with the filmmaker Danny Perez. And uh, in that situation, it was a, uh, meant to be another kind of installation performance type work where they had created lots and lots of recordings of different sounds. And they wanted the sounds to be spread out throughout the, uh, uh, the Guggenheim Museum's big spiral. So we ended up putting about 40 speakers, uh, well, four subwoofers and 36 speakers, six per floor up the six floors of the Guggenheim spiral in New York City. Uh, and finding inventive ways to move the sounds around, to choose which ones would happen when. Some sounds they really wanted to have happen together. Some sounds they didn't care when they happened, but they wanted to make sure they did happen at least once or twice, but not more than twice over the course of three hours. So all these rules began to form around the pile of sounds that they'd given me. Um, and uh, uh, the, there's lots of documentation of that piece online. Uh, oh, that's interesting what the resolution has done to this. So uh, on the left is uh, the entirety of the code uh, it's kind of all spread out uh, in, in Max. I was having a moment where I really felt like Max code itself was a beautiful visual artifact of a, of a process. And so uh, this over on the, the right half is kind of a detail of the top part of this diagram. But um, they ended up 
using this, uh, all of the Max code as a poster that they printed and put inside the album release of this material when it finally came out. So um, there is, strangely, some of my Max code published on paper <laughs> that is, is out in the world uh, in this way. But once again, uh, a, a similar kind of system to what you saw there in, in Bora's piece, uh, making decisions about when to insert sound. Um, this is a piece uh, that is, is made by uh, an artist named Anthony McCall. Some of you may know his work. Uh, uh, his more famous work is about projecting light through haze. Uh, his most famous uh, art piece is, uh, uh, is called uh, A Line Describing a Cone, which is a half hour long piece in which a, a, a sort of a beam of light elongates and eventually draws a circle over the space of, uh, of 30 minutes. And as that happens, you're seeing the circle projected on a screen, but the light that goes from the projector to the screen is also completely visible and made visible by this haze that's hanging in the room. And the, uh, the audience is encouraged to go step into that and step into the light traveling across the room as though it were kind of a 3D object or a sculpture. So his work is very much uh, about taking intangible things and trying to make them tangible or visible or look at the structures of them. And so it kind of makes sense that he would start shifting his work into sound. Uh, he had done some early experiments with sound and in uh, uh, starting in 2013, we're still working together on some new stuff now, but starting in 2013, we began to work on uh, uh, an idea he had had many uh, years back uh, about moving white noise around inside a space and being able to feel uh, what's happening in a space through projecting noise into it. Uh, the more we worked on the piece, the more it evolved. And eventually his idea became to create something that was like an actual wave uh, crashing on a shore, sort of moving across the room. Uh, documentation of this piece is really tricky to show uh, because it's nothing like being in the actual room with these five speakers and hearing the travel of the sound. What you get is this feeling of the sound rushing towards one wall and then sort of smashing against the gallery wall. And we, as our metric of how to uh, adjust this piece for whatever space we're in, we really go with this sense of what is visceral about that arrival moment of the sound in the space. Um, the, uh, the thing we found here once again was that, uh, and th this is a composition, this is not a recording of a wave. This is a carefully constructed set of pink noise and white noise envelopes that are being used to create the simulation of a wave. And it's actually really effective. Somehow strangely, it, our, our, our minds go there and want to believe it. Uh, and I get a lot of questions about where the field recording came from that made this wave, which I is, is I'm proud of that. Um, but uh, we found that hearing the same thing happen in the room over and over again, just like anything else that's looping, you start to become aware of the mechanical, you start, it starts to be somewhere in a not nice place in the uncanny valley. Uh, you start to feel like the, um, the, the sound that you're producing is not 
you know, has a synthetic uh, or repetitive quality to it. So what I started to do was just to randomize certain parts of this process. Maybe the speed would be slightly different. Maybe the, the, it would uh, swell a little more in the fourth speaker. Uh, maybe the crash this time would be a little louder or a little softer than last time. And not in ways that are even something that you hear unless you're really, really listening for it, but in ways that give us enough of a cue to tell us that this is an organic process that's happening differently every time. So in other words, not all of the uses for generative audio are to create something that's like really overt and crazily different. In this case, it was meant to insert just enough nuance into a situation to create a, a, a something that was believably real or organic or, or something you'd want to spend more time with. Uh, and we found that that worked. So, um, okay. Uh, before I, I move along into other stuff, I just want to say uh, sort of si sidebar style that I, I think that uh, for what I know a lot of you are here thinking about and looking at, a lot of the way that this kind of work might be applicable to what you're doing is at first will be something along the lines of uh, maybe the person who's listening in their home to your podcast is listening in the morning and then later on somebody else is listening in the evening. So maybe the soundscape that is behind the narrator is different depending on the local context of the listener. Um, Maybe, as I think is often the case when we see new technologies being unrolled, it will be heavily influenced by advertising money. And a lot of these places where this first happens will be to allow certain kinds of product placement or certain kinds of uh, uh, other kinds of commercial messages to somehow be put in, even if it's just dynamic ads inside of a podcast. Yeah, that's kind of gross. I agree. I'm not really, that's not the part of this I'm excited about. I feel like that this is, but those, the development of those technologies will then have artistic possibilities associated with them. And, and my hope is that what, what we're watching right now is the convergence of radio and documentary media podcasting with television and cinema and video games and uh, uh, straight up gallery artwork, uh, uh, web projects, other kinds of interdisciplinary projects. These things are all seeming to me as they're on kind of a collision course, not that the different audiences they serve are going to necessarily change, but the technologies we use to make them are coming together uh, in, in exciting ways and are going to be kind of inter, interoperable and like Across different, across different projects deployable in ways that uh, we're starting to see the possibilities of. So all of the projects I've shown up till now really just focus on very directly changing audio content. Um, and now I'm gonna show a few projects that kind of push things out in a, in a, in a different direction uh, and show some of the uh, other possibilities of where I think this can go. Um, Thanks for staying with me so far. I hope this is, I hope this is interesting. This uh, is a project I'm fairly proud of. Um, we did a few years ago. It's a, this is a rather slick produced video of a piece called Glory Road, which is a retelling of the story of Sisyphus. 
We wanted to have Sisyphus rolling uh, a huge boulder up a hill in the middle of midtown Manhattan. Um, that's Sisyphus, that's Persephone, who'll be watching over Sisyphus and kind of in control of the situation. And these are the minions of Hades, of course, with their QR codes. Um, and the idea was there was this big 500 pound steel ball that needed to be, it's full of speakers, there's 12 speakers in there, and a computer, uh, and a small sensor called an uh, accelerometer that's at the center of the sphere that is allowing the computer to know what the orientation of the sphere is at any given moment. Sisyphus's task, we decided having an actual hill in the middle of Manhattan would be very dangerous, uh, and we could take out people in cars really easily with it, so instead of uh, ensuring that, uh, yeah, when, every time he has to start over, he has to sing the song and get interrupted. It's part of the piece. And then he kind of goes back and forth on this red carpet all day. But the hill, the conceptual hill that he's pushing up against is actually a puzzle. Uh, he has to put the sphere into 44 different positions consecutively um, as he's working on this. And if he fails at any point, then he has, then it's a, like he has to start over to the, back to the beginning again. So, uh, so we're seeing here his sort of his struggle. Um, there's a version of this piece that we then sort of took it out of the theatrical context and just made it something that was uh, interactive for uh, audiences to work with. So this is, uh, we, called, we ended up calling this piece Sisyphus 2.0. And this is a, a interactive sound sculpture with uh, generative audio content. Um, there's these two pitches, which are being pulsed at different rates, and the rate of the pulsing changes and the pitch changes depending on the position of the sphere. One is uh, tied to a position in kind of the x-axis of the sphere, and one is tied to a position in the y-axis of the sphere, and as you roll it around, what you're trying to do is find the point where the two pitches match. One pitch uh, traverses an octave, like this, and one traverses an octave like this. So there's a point where one is at its lowest note and one is at its highest note where you can get it to the right spot. Now, that spot is randomly selected somewhere on the sphere every time the game is played. So none of us knows where it is. But using your ears, you can... They're getting close. They solved the puzzle. So uh, we've basically created the world's heaviest ear training instrument um, with this piece. But this is just another example of taking a generative system that's responding to information from the outside world. And then uh, we get to play this fun little video game song at the end that you won. It lasts about 45 seconds, and then it goes back to torturing you with its pulsing sounds again. Uh, So, uh, okay. Um, another project that uh, uh, I want to talk about real briefly uh, is uh, this piece, uh, which is a, uh, uh, I, I created a bunch of these boxes in, in 2014. Uh, the box is basically to mask some of the louder motor sounds of the linear actuator. Uh, the linear actuator moves in and out, and uh, in doing so, moves the slide on a slide whistle. And then there are these fans, which are sort of 
cribbed together. It's a combination of shrink tubing, plumbing equipment, surgical tubing, and uh, these, these computer cooling fans um, that uh, push air through the mouth of the, the slide whistle and play it. Um, there's also a music box mounted on the front just because I wanted something else in the sound palette that this thing was capable of doing. Uh, so uh, we stained these boxes to match the wood on this old crazy fountain at a place called the Caramore Center for Music and the Arts in upstate New York. And uh, eight of these uh, uh, slide whistles were positioned around the, the, the sort of top of the, the, the concrete base of the fountain there. Um, so here's a short video of some of this in operation. There we go. So there's somebody kind of singing into it or yelling into it. And what the slide whistles are trying to do, there's a little microphone attached a little ways out. It's trying to listen to any sound happening in the environment, whether that's voices, birds, lawnmowers, whatever's going on in the vicinity and it's trying to match pitch with what's going on, which I found to be really kind of creepy and wonderful. This, this piece sort of has a, a playful quality, but also sort of a strange surveillance quality. And uh, yeah, I, I, I liked the sort of mixed feelings that it, it, it brought about. Um, the piece is called Diacousticon, and there's a bunch of documentation online of this piece. Um, Here's a piece where uh, the performer, uh, an actual human, is part of the filter of the sound making process. Uh, I created a program that would listen to sound and collect information about pitch, pitches and uh, rhythms that were going on and hold that information uh, uh, aside and kind of just store it over time. And then once it's been listening for at least an hour, uh, the performer can hit go and a grand staff appears and notes start appearing on the grand staff. And so uh, this was written for this amazing pianist, Jenny Lin, uh, and she started using it as kind of the, the final piece of a concert. So she would get done playing uh, a bunch of different composers uh, and then would put the laptop up and hit go and you would hear this sort of one-tenth scale, you know, in six minutes uh, the last 60 minutes condensed into a piece. Uh, so because it's really just notes and approximate rhythms that are being given to her, a lot of information about how to perform these notes, how to interpret them, are decisions that she's being allowed to make sort of as, as a part of the composition. And she's seeing all of these notes at the first, for the first time as they're appearing to her. So it's a different kind of generative audio where I'm generating a set of instructions for immediate interpretation. Uh, and those are, are being carried out in this way. Um, okay. Uh, the last project I'm going to go into any depth about is uh, a recent research project. Actually, I've just wrapped this up, or the, the initial part of this, in the last year. Uh, this ended up uh, completing 
uh, and uh, the report was published, I think, just a couple of, the final report was published just a couple of months ago. It's a project called Soundscape Design of Motorway Parkland Environments, Cancellation, Transformation, and Ethnography. Um, this is uh, all through uh, a partnership between a company called Transurban that builds uh, highways and tollways in Australia primarily and uh, RMIT, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, uh, which all of these folks here uh, uh, besides myself are, are associated with. Uh, we did a number of site visits, found some locations to work in. Uh, this is the team of folks that I worked with. Uh, the two folks on the end, uh, Zhao Zhan Chu and his graduate student, Sepi Chao, are uh, folks who are um, uh, very uh, much sort of international experts in the field of noise cancellation, uh, the kinds of algorithms that go into your noise canceling headphones, for example, to uh, take sound that's coming in and eradicate it. And their part of the project was to create uh, an array of microphones and speakers along a sound wall uh, at the side of a, of a highway uh, uh, to see what could be done to actually just straight up cancel the sound coming off the highway uh, that was running through this neighborhood in this particular, uh, we had one neighborhood in Melbourne and one in Sydney we were working in. Um, the folks who are sharing the bench with me there led by uh, Sarah Pink are uh, uh, experts in sensory ethnography they worked fairly independently from us, and their part of the project was to interview uh, members of the community about the problem of noise in the neighborhood, which there were a lot of complaints about at the time, and then to sort of have them into experience the things we were creating and to get some kind of independent feedback for us on what was what people's experience of these things were and what kind of value they saw in them. So it was great to have that as a, as a very important component of, of this project. And then the rest of us here, led by Jordan Lacey in the blue striped shirt in the back, uh, were working on kind of a, a, a very experimental sound art uh, method of, of trying to, to realize this project. Jordan is a sound artist himself, uh, recently published a book called Sonic Rupture, a practice-led practice approach to urban soundscape design. Uh, Jordan and I became connected to each other through each of us having a lot of interest in the field of acoustic ecology, the work of Armory Schaefer and Hildegard Westerkamp and Barry Truax, and uh, uh, thinking a lot about how we as humans sort of live in our sonic environments, but not being terribly satisfied with uh, a lot of the theory that uh, acoustic ecology provides for talking about urban soundscapes. They kind of tend to be uh, a bit natural sound good, urban sound bad, natural sound hi-fi, urban sound lo-fi, and that tends to be the end of the conversation in their theory. So he was trying to develop some more sophisticated ways of talking about dealing with and thinking about urban sound from the standpoint of acoustic ecology. In his book, he writes, there's no reason to assume that developers and governments would not welcome changes to their own practices. The challenge for us as creative practitioners is to convince them on how our efforts can augment their own. In other words, um, instead of just picketing them and saying urban noise is bad and awful, there may be ways to form partnerships with them to create situations. While we look for larger solutions, 
to make the here and now a bit more palatable. So that's what this project was uh, all about. Jordan's individual artistic practice very much revolves around air conditioning units. Uh, that's why you see them, a lot of them on the cover of his book. But this was a different uh, foray into the world of, uh, of highway noise. So this was the kind of setup that we worked in. Uh, you see both the, uh, the Melbourne and the, the Sydney uh, arrangements here. We surrounded ourselves with a quad speaker system, which I wish I could replicate for you today. Uh, and we uh, put some microphones along the top of this big sound wall. Every time you see this sort of big wall in front of us here in the middle photo or to the side in that upper right photo, that is the, the a sound wall and the other side of that is a rush of traffic, a rush of cars. And we're trying to figure out what we can do to change the sonic environment in some way where we are in a way that will make our experience of it something different. So I got, this was basically how uh, the, the desk I got to go work at for several weeks. Just, it was kind of nice to have a computer with a large screen and then uh, uh, a bunch of sort of open air. It was full of traffic noise, but that's what I was there to sort of play with. In the end, the results that we came up with, uh, we got to show to the folks from Transurban who are basically identified here as anybody wearing a check button-down shirt. That's apparently the engineering uh, uniform if you, if you work for a highway company in Australia. Um, so uh, just as they're here listening, uh, I want to also uh, allow us to listen to a little bit of where this project ended up. Uh, and I learned today that the reason this doesn't sound quite as good as I hope it is is that the, I'm actually in coming out of these speakers in mono. I've only got one channel coming from my computer back to the board, so you have to imagine it's actually four times as cool. So this is just a straight up recording of what the highway noises sounded like in that location. What we hoped to do with the project was not to create sound to mask or eradicate or somehow blast out the, the, the highway sound. People can do that easily enough with headphones. We were really trying not to drive people back into headphones <laughs> with this project. And we were trying not to create situations that were going to be uh, super uh, uh, loud and combative and how they dealt with the sound. What we were hoping to do is instead create accompaniments, dynamically generated accompaniments to the sound of the highway that would allow you to experience them in different ways. So this is one here. That was a, the honk of a car horn that made that quick sound. You can hear something's going on in there. This one I, th I find to be pretty subtle. You really notice it though when it, when it leaves, when it's out. Um, I'll skip right to the one that everyone agreed was sort of the most effective. 
Uh, you know, I may need to do one quick thing here. So this is right now a bunch of pitches that are being extracted from the highway noise as it's occurring. Um, sort of the most prominent pitches as they become available uh, are coming into the software and then we're quantizing them to the nearest pitch in a major scale. Um, and because we're not actually sitting at the highway, I can do this magic thing of removing the highway and just showing you the sound that's actually being generated in the background. The strangest thing about this experience was that as I was working on these kinds of sound accompaniments, um, which are fairly hard to translate into this environment in only mono, but you can kind of get a sense of what is happening with it. Um, um, as I would shut down everything for the night and be packing up my boxes, knowing that no sound is being generated, my mind would be continuing to produce the sound along with the stimulus of the highway noise. And in fact, even at night in my hotel room, especially in Melbourne where I had kind of a noisy environment outside my hotel, I would fall asleep still kind of generating this, almost as though I'd absorbed the program into my brain uh, and I was hearing it. But it really does start to change, uh, if it's set to just the right level, to start to change your uh, uh, experience of this environment. Um, And I think uh, I've got time. I'm going to show just one other short video without a whole lot of description. Uh, it's a piece that I finished a year ago. Uh, no computer uh, is involved in this piece. It's an old 1940s switchboard that's been modified to control a bunch of voltages. And it's a gallery space that is full of about 85 different ready-made objects. Uh, some of them are presented just as they came, a sewing machine and, a, and a, uh, a vacuum cleaner and an egg beater. Some of them have been modified slightly from their original purpose. In some cases, we, uh, my collaborator Peter Busigal and I created uh, sort of playful systems to sort of interfere with the sounds that the devices normally made or sort of mash two things together. Uh, so this is a, a piece 
It's called Chorus for Untrained Operator because uh, you come in and nothing is labeled. I think the labels we left on the, the uh, switchboard actually corresponded to whatever department store this was originally deployed in. Uh, it's got a label for menswear and a label for uh, lingerie and that kind of thing. So you could connect to these different departments with this, this switchboard. Um, but the process of getting to know and work with the, uh, this instrument is all about uh, people sort of having that interactive uh, moment of, of experience and discovery. Oh no, this piece is yet again giving me trouble. Let's see, do I still have it? Yeah, I can make it happen here, I think. here the uh, tray of uh, papers on the wall. We actually left a diagram of the surface of the, uh, uh, the uh, 
switchboard available for people to take notes on and perhaps sketch out scores or sequences of sounds for themselves and maybe leave instructions for other people to come into the gallery and be able to reproduce the things that they were creating. So um, over the course of the month this exhibited here and the couple of months we exhibited uh, thereafter uh, in another gallery, we have this sort of large collection of uh, what people ended up actually doing with it. Uh, it's another form of generative audio I really like, which is where you create a system and then allow other people to come along and, uh, and have sort of an interaction with it. Um, so I don't know at the end of the day what I can tell you exactly about how this applies to what you're doing, but I, I hope you can tell me and I hope that you'll tell us and I hope that you'll show us and I hope that the work that you uh, do as this technology becomes more and more accessible and more and more a part of our world uh, is something that we all get to enjoy. So thank you so much for your attention. I'm happy to take questions. Hi, how much coding is involved in like what programming, like my confusion I guess is like, you mentioned all those programs, do they all like work in the same language or is each different program have its own language and then how do you even go about learning about it uh, in the first place? Um, right, so uh, there are, that's a lot of questions. Uh, I'm the, so sorry. Uh, yeah, all of the, so all of the different languages I showed you are independent from one another, are developing kind of on their own track with their own group, with their own community of developers, people who are on the inside designing the language, people who are on the outside using the language and giving feedback about feature requests and things they would like to see. And so I think each one is developing kind of along its own trajectory. But the capabilities... So knowing one doesn't help you know another? Well, it's, it's kind of like the way that knowing one DAW lets you use another. Uh, in the sense that they may call things different things, there may be different shapes or different words, but a lot of the concepts are, are interoperable, interinterpretable um, um, from, from one environment to another. Um, uh, a lot of universities are offering classes in this. If you're in New York City, there's an organization called Harvest Works that uh, does a great job of trying to get word out about this uh, kind of thing and, and offers classes in it. Um, uh, and, and even if you're not anywhere near any kind of resources for this, the internet is full of tutorials and, and forums and people who are scratching their heads on uh, beginner, advanced, intermediate levels about all of this stuff. So uh, uh, the dialogue around those communities, uh, at least the languages that I uh, mentioned today, are all pretty vibrant. So there's a, there's a place to start with each. I always advise people to not start by learning the language, but to start with a project. Something specific you want to accomplish and try and do, even if it's just a speculative thing that you don't have an application for, just an idea of, hmm, I wonder if, you, if I could make X happen. Um, because probably if you have that idea, there's an ulterior motive in there somewhere for you of something you might want to, to get to. So I would say go with that and try to make that. Um, I've been programming in Max for uh, a full, 20 years now, and uh, I'm always, uh, uh, every, every year I have a student who comes up to me and says, oh, have you ever played with this object? Have you ever seen this set of things that the program can do? And I'll be completely dumbfounded by it because I've never had a use for that particular application in what I'm doing, so I've never touched it. 
Um, just like there's whole parts of the English language I've never touched because I don't have any reason to have touched them yet. Um, so that's, I think, if you think about it less as trying to master an enormous and growing and changing like language, uh, and more about here's a tool to accomplish something interesting, uh, I think that that's, that's going to be a lot less intimidating and a lot more realizable. And then you go from there. Um, some people really do uh, end up loving the language for the sake of just loving the language and wanting to learn all of it. But most of us, I think, who are makers really just want, at the end of the day, make a piece of art or make a piece of media and want to have the shortest line between A and B. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hi. Um, are there any sort of like cliches that people fall back on when generating, well, you know, doing generative audio, like that everybody's first piece will have this feature, and so like the, the point of my question is like, is there a way to sort of skip that step? Um, it's a new enough field that I don't know uh, you might not skip that step, but I mean, it's. <laughs> uh, uh, but I think that that step is useful. Just like you know, when we're teaching beginning audio to students, and you're like, make an audio collage of your day, so they can kind of get, including a toilet flush in their sound assignment, like out of the way, you know, at the beginning of a class, like because you have to do that at one point in your life, right? So I feel like there are certain cliches. There are certain things that are very. I guess I would say there are certain things that are very easy to do. Uh, things that just have a, a very slow fade in and fade out are uh, we there's kind of an electronic music term uh, that I think those of us who teach composition and stuff in those worlds sort of refer to that as the tapered turd it's just it's a very it's a very easy gesture to do and it's so subtle and it's it's beguiling in some ways but it's it, because it has no edges, it's also like completely inoffensive. And so I feel like it's a, it's a very tentative way to kind of start working with making sound. Um, but I mean, that doesn't mean it isn't somehow, sometimes exactly the perfect decision. So I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm reluctant to answer that question with any kind of, oh yeah, don't do X, because sometimes X might actually be perfect. So yeah, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, thank you for coming here. This is uh, like I feel like a, a lot of what I needed, <laughs> uh, uh, especially mentioning the um, the tools that people are building for advertising and thinking about using those generatively. Um, just want to toss out. Please that, like, take those tools and do interesting things with them. Please. Yeah. Um, yeah. Megaphone, which I don't know if people here are familiar with, but like Gimlet, Slate, Panoply, all are using this new technology to host that has dynamic ad insertion. That like here we go. That like I think I, I never really thought about it before from a, a creative standpoint. But like they have a way of saying like, oh well, in the first three months we're running this ad, or the first fifteen thousand downloads we'll have this ad, um, and then maybe it'll switch over to this ad. But you could also be like, well, only the first five people who get this episode <laughs> will have this little segment that happens, and like there's anyway. I, I just wanted to right. share that to, so to say that like this is a real assemble, thing. Right. If you can dynamically assemble audio for download, you know, from a bunch of different parts that kind of come together, then why not use that technology to do really cool things so that everyone who downloads your piece gets a completely different thing? You know, maybe everything's in a different order, or maybe there's, 
you know, 20 possible things, and each person gets five of those things, and they have to download it multiple times to get all of them. I mean, there's, there's, there's all these different ways of thinking about structuring stuff once you start going into what those tools could do besides sell widgets. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to just like throw that out in case people weren't familiar with it. But I also wanted to ask you a question, which is, um, uh, I know that I personally have spent like the last two years kind of like wrestling with like the political implications of my work and like if if it's just sort of something that's beautiful to me like I think that there's value to that but I, I also um, feel like I care about having my work engaged in a political way if indirectly and I'm curious for your work and how you how you've thought about um, uh, your art um, how you think about it in relation to politics in some ways some of them I can kind of imagine what the connection might be, but I'm curious to hear you speak to that. Yeah, that, there's many layers to that. Obviously, when talking about the, the project uh, I, I showed uh, about the highway sound transformation, that's, a very, that's very much about trying to serve a community and trying to, to, to deal with a particular social ill and a particular problem. And having a certain uh, agenda and kind of how we think about solving it and working with it. So I think like that kind of stuff, there's not really a need to explain further in terms of what the political concept is. I think there's a lot of ethical issues around that kind of work. I feel, uh, I mean, one of the reactions we got from the acoustic ecology community, um, uh, which is kind of a, a, this feeling of I feel it's kind of like a knee-jerk Marxist sort of thing of like letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. The response was, oh, you're making it easier for people to be in situations where there is highway noise. Therefore, you're enabling highway noise to continue as a social ill as opposed to you know, applying your, uh, what you can do to attack it directly and stop it. And it's, I, I, I get that argument on a certain level, but it's, I also feel like there's, uh, and we have to we have to deal with the here and now. Traffic isn't going away tomorrow, and it's not going away maybe even in five years. After that, we might have silent flying cars, and that would be amazing. They drive themselves, uh, and then we wouldn't need roads, and we could tear them all down and make other cool things out of them. And I'd love that. Uh, this is not. Uh, none of this work was meant to be pro road, pro road or pro urban noise. It's trying to look at, since this is a situation we're currently living in, how do we think about dealing with that? And so, um, but that was a sort of an interesting conversation to end up having with people uh, to, to realize that that was one of the responses we were getting. I feel like for some, a lot of the other work, um, I am tackling uh, different ideas, but a, a lot of what it comes down to is trying to engage people in a kind of awareness of the sonic environment that they're in, trying to uh, find ways to pull people into uh, a mode of, of co-creation or of, of understanding or having an experience of an environment in a way that's really engaging and feeling like or hoping that that might on some level improve awareness. Uh, and improve people's engagement with the world that they're in. I feel like we're often in situations, I mean, just walking from here back over to the main building over that bridge, we're in, confronted with this noise that we basically just have to ignore, which is this really loud air handling, you know, insanity that's going on in that, in that bridge. Uh, they could have designed it differently. If that were a priority, they could have made a different sound there. But we are living in a world where our awareness of sound and how that functions for us is, is something that is um, 
uh, uh, lacking. So I'm kind of hoping that with a lot of this work, part of what comes out of it is people feeling more sensitized to their sound environment, and maybe that pushes conversations in a certain direction, pushes design in a certain di direction. Uh, and that's kind of the underlying idea. Um, yeah. I feel like there's never an adequate answer to that question, and you can go crazy asking it of yourself, but it's a good question to ask. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Uh, first of all, I loved your stuff, and it was really awesome. I got into sound before I got into radio doing, um, mixing sound for shadow puppet shows, large-scale shadow shows. Yeah. I thought you'd like that, but I, what I'm thinking, you said, what, what, what might you use this for? My first thought goes back to shadow shows and how I'd love to have, I love to have live musicians and um, things like that, but I'm thinking, wow, what kind of interesting um, exploration that is unknown that could happen with a, this kind of thing. Um, but then I'm thinking about radio, and the first thing I think about with what you're doing is, is the term wabi-sabi. Does that make any, does that, do you, are you familiar with that? that I feel word? like I've heard it, but I could use a thumbnail definition from you. Well, it can mean a lot of things, but it could, it could mean anything, what it really means is accepting things as they are and not trying to control, um, uh, and it, seeing the beauty of everything from, you know, bird shit on a building to the, the sunset and, you know, just, just all of it and how, and not trying to control it, really. Um, and I think that you said at the beginning, so my, I have two questions. I think you said at the beginning that you may have done something, or somebody said, maybe the introducer, that you did something with a dance group. And I'm thinking about how uh, improvisational dance could go really interestingly with, with this thing, this sound thing. And my second question is, I wonder if you have any thoughts about what the heck was going on with Cuba with the sound? Do you know what I'm talking about? With which? What, which I, I'm so, I don't know very well. In Cuba, you know, like people getting... Oh, gosh. Yeah, 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 in Cuba. So those yeah. are my two questions. Um, wow. Uh, didn't see that last one coming. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, can, 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 sure, man, you can weaponize anything. You know, if you really want to hurt people, you can figure it out. I could, you know, this water bottle I could kill you with it. I, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's... You know, um, I feel like yeah. Sorry, um, I feel like like I I don't I don't know what was done in 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 Cuba. I feel like uh, I I'm kind of happier with us not knowing because I feel like as soon as we know, then there's going to be a bunch of idiots who try and use it. So, um, and I like my hearing and I want to keep it, uh, but I don't I don't other than it's having created yet another reason for me to be paranoid about something. I, I, uh, I don't have any idea about that. Um, the other question about the, about the, the dance group, uh, uh, I worked for six years with uh, the Merce Cunningham Dance Company, uh, the music director uh, for that for many years, although not while I was there, he was already gone, uh, was John Cage. And uh, he, yeah, John Cage supporters in the room. Um, uh, the, the thing that was most profound to me about that experience was the 60-year history that uh, Merce and uh, John created of uh, creating music and dance entirely independently from one another and then allowing the two things to come together and not adapting them to each other in any way or not making any changes. Um, and, and also, the, often the, the, the music was quite improvised or at least 
uh, an indeterminate structure that could unfold differently every night. And the dance was always fixed, like absolutely uh, fixed. And people would come up and want to see the score for the music and want to know how the dancers were structuring their improvisation. They'd have it completely backwards in terms of what the relationship between the two phenomena was. But it was a lesson that if you have different streams of thought um, going on uh, independently from one another, that the audience will assemble its own meaning uh, and its own sense of what's going on uh, with, a, with a work. And I feel like that's something that carries over into lots of different things, that you don't always have to have your sound design uh, punctuating and making the same point that your narration's making, and if you're working in a visual medium that your visuals are making. You can actually have them all happening simultaneously, thinking about and responding to different aspects of what is on the table and allowing the audience the freedom to kind of move amongst the media and determine how they want to go about it. So it feels kind of like Wabi Sabi. Yeah, that's but, very like Wabi Sabi. Yeah. The, the meaning is constructed. Yeah, yeah, but it was, for them it was this very modernist idea of ind the independence of media. Uh, and that's been really influential for me and it allows me to sort of insert these pieces into different environments and instead of really wanting to control the environment it's in, just kind of seeing what the interaction ends up being and understanding every time you go to do anything it's a different thing uh, and kind of coming to peace with that and also looking that, at that as an opportunity to continue to learn and be surprised by your own work. Um, when we're using these tools whether it's Maxim SP or like the Brian Eno apps or anything like that, are there, are there rights issues that we need to be worried about? Like if I were to use the, one of the Brian Eno apps to score a podcast would I need to worry about Securing rights for that? Probably. Probably for Brian Eno's work, although there may be some disclaimer about that. I mean, it's like, a, it's like is it an instrument? Is it a composition when I'm tapping so it? So he's very, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to think it's an instrument. And I, I, I personally, I would say, if, if I made the laws, go ahead. Um, I don't, or at least just mention, give attribution to this is the instrument or this is the tool you use to make the sound, but then go ahead and do it anyway. But um, his lawyers may have different feelings about that. And I don't really know where that comes down. For something with Max, however, Max is just a language. You open it up, it's a completely blank slate. And so there's no, you know, if you take some copyrighted material and play it through Max, and it's still recognizable, then you have the same issues you always have when you're doing editing and everything else. But I think you know, simply using Max or any of those pieces of software, there's no rights issues about having to give attribution or payment or what licensing. I, what if or I like use one of your code templates? Would I have to? Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is like theoretical. I'm not actually. Gonna no, do no. It's actually no. It, it, this is something I gave a lot of thought to. That project that I showed. Um, that I did with uh, Animal Collective, when I created it, I actually created a version of it where the Max code was simply downloadable. And people could download it if they had Max, which is a free 30-day trial thing, so anybody could download it and, and boot it up and use it. Anybody would have access to that code. They didn't have Animal Collective sound files, but they had the code I made to you know, sort of animate the structure. Uh, and I thought at that point in time, and I think I still feel today that I'm, I'm much more interested in sharing that kind of information and building on the community uh, than trying to sort of control my secret sauce or something about how those decisions get made. I find that for every project I do, I end up rewriting the code 
so extensively to suit the specific situation I'm trying to do. I'm never trying to make generic tools for uh, addressing a large swath of problems. I'm usually trying to build something that will solve the thing I'm working on today. So if somebody gets a hold of my code, which would be, in many cases, my students, uh, or uh, if I leave something that's available online for people to download, I'm doing that with the idea that people will jump into it and start hacking on that and copying out parts of it that are interesting. If you go to the, the Max Forum on the Cycling74 website, um, they have an extensive code library, which the whole point is just to take this stuff and use it, and use it as kind of starter code for your own ideas. Uh, and that's uh, pretty well embedded into the ethos of that community. So, yeah. Thank you.